struggled a lot trying to figure out what to even talk about today because <laughs> there's so many different things that could be meditated on and discussed and came to the conclusion this morning with the first reading to do what Moses did and repeat himself. The book of Deuteronomy is a memoir. The book of Deuteronomy repeats almost all the stories that you already read in Genesis, Exodus, um, and Numbers. And he goes through it again because they're about to receive a promise, which is what we're about to receive as well. And so the people of Israel are sitting at the borders of the Promised Land and they're preparing themselves to go to receive it. Moses, of course, himself isn't going with them. And he sits them down and says, we need to have a talk before you partake of this gift so that you remember all the things that the Lord God, your God, has done. So we will do that as well to understand what it is that the Lord our God has done because if we want to partake of the grace of the resurrection, then we need to understand the mystery also of His crucifixion and of His incarnation and of the economy of our only begotten God. As we've said many times, and forgive me that it's a repetition, God existed before the ages in and of Himself. He existed in spite of us. He exists because He simply is. That's why He identifies Himself as the Being. Right? that he is somebody who is in a constant state of existence. He is not dependent on anything. He didn't need praise. He didn't need servants. He didn't need slaves. He didn't need anything at all. He was complete in and of himself. The Trinity was complete according to his own self. However, the Trinity itself as God is love. And if you can think, for example, to try and understand this, I know it's hard, we've talked about having kids, right? Just think of some random object that exists that somehow has the power to make another object exist, but doesn't need that other object to exist. And if that object allows another thing to exist just for the sake of it being, right? And being happy to give it existence, even not needing it, it says something of that first object, right? It says that it's not self-absorbed. It says that it's, it's, it's content to have other things. But in the case of our God, He felt compelled in His love to create. Right? Otherwise, He would not have done such a thing. And in creating, He created many things. He not only created the earth, but before man even, He created the angels. Right? And He gave the angels much of His spirit as well. He didn't have a physical bodily existence, they were a spiritual existence, and he loved them too. Even Lucifer, the firstborn of, of the angels, he has had love for. And he wanted to give something very special to man whom he created, a gift that we trample upon and we don't often take very seriously. And that gift, as we've said on almost every single sermon, because it's why we exist, is His own image and likeness, right? He gave us the ability to be Him. He imparted into us, if you will, His own DNA, His own thinking, His own thoughts, His own rationality, His own attributes. These were things that He was not in any way compelled to do. He could have just made us as some random creature and just been excited that He had toys, but He didn't. 
right? He gave us him his own self. He gave us three things: his identity, incorruption, and immortality. These are three things that we did not have by nature. Because we are not God, we don't self-exist. That means we don't just get to randomly decide that we're alive or not. We didn't get to choose to be born, right? That simply happened in spite of us. We, because we are made out of material things, are corrupt. We can die, right? In fact, we do die. But God gave us a grace that so long as we were in unity with Him, that we could partake of these gifts that belong to Him by nature. He was giving to us by grace what belongs to Him by nature. As we've said many times, He took what is ours and gave us what is His. What is His is His divinity, okay, His immortality, and His incorruption. And He gave this to humanity for free. Man didn't do something in the garden that earned him this gift. Right? It wasn't, let me test this out for a little bit, and if I see that these things are behaving in a certain way, I'll allow it to be this. It was completely non-conditional, like the giving itself was originally non-conditional. But the keeping of the gifts was conditional. And, and when we use the word conditional, it often makes people uncomfortable because then it means like it sounds like they're being mean or they're they're being selfish. But no, this isn't this isn't the case. The condition here is because of the limitations of what I am by nature. Right? And for example, if I gave as we use another example, the ants the ability to be human, right? An ant might get my attributes, my characteristics, but an ant is an ant by nature. So it's limited by its nature. An ant, for example, can't get, as we said, as close to the fire as myself because it's this small, right? So this condition is not God putting on a condition of saying, well, because I, I just don't like certain things. It was by the nature of man that this condition was placed, and by the nature of the world, because the, the world itself was also a created place that didn't exist in and of itself. And so God gave man a law, and the law sounds like a mean thing, but as again, as we've said many times, it isn't, because the law wasn't arbitrary. The law wasn't, I've decided here are the rules for you to live by. The law was simply nature, right? The law was simply, this is your design, and so this is the law. As an analogy we use many times is the car, right? If a car is made and it has a manual, right, you can consider the manual the law for the car. Right? It's not a tyrant engineer who put a law. It's by vir mere virtue of the fact that a car is made out of something and runs in a certain way that it has to run in this way. That's the law. Right? The law points us towards the design. The law isn't tyranny. And to prove his point even more that it wasn't tyranny is that he gave man one more monumental gift, which is freedom. He said that even though this is how it's supposed to run, even though this is why I made you, I made you purely out of love, I made you purely to be in, in, in relationship, to be as a family, to love you and to be loved back. And even though I've given you all of this, I'm giving you the option whether or not you want to participate in this relationship or not. I'm giving you the option whether you want to treat this thing that I gave you with respect or not. 
and asked us what it is that we wanted to do in response. Imagine if, for example, you have a close friend, right? And you can start with something very, very trivial, right? If, if your friend is annoyed that you chomp your gum loudly, right? You have the freedom to chomp your gum. Will you continue to chomp it when you know it irritates them? So that's a trivial thing. But what if your friend has confided in you all of their secrets? And you know that revealing the secrets would, would deeply wound your friend. Would you go and tell people this person's secrets? This is a freedom that you have, right? But the law of friendship would dictate that you shouldn't, right? But the freedom of your humanity allows you to if you wish. This is what our Lord gave to us, right? He gave us the rules, He gave us the identity, He gave us the purpose, He gave us the design, and said, this is what you are made for, okay? You are made to be in my image and likeness, you are made to be me, and you are made as my family. That's your identity, okay, in spite of you. Whether you want it or don't want it, that is who you are. That is your purpose. Whether you believe in me or not is absolutely irrelevant to this fact of the, that, that you are made to be this. And I'm allowing you to believe, I'm allowing you to disbelieve, I'm allowing you to love me, I'm allowing you to dislove me, and that was that. Unfortunately, as is the case, not just for Adam and Eve, our forefather and our foremother, it's all the same today, most of the times we don't choose the right thing. Most of the time we choose the thing that makes us most comfortable or appears to be the most fun. And our enemy, the devil, who can't be left out of this whole story, was very angry about this gift. He was angry about this gift because he didn't receive it. Lucifer saw himself as the best of creation because up until the creation of man he had that glory and he had that dignity of being the most fair among it. Lum Lu Lucifer means the luminous one. And he was envious that God would allow this little thing that he created to have his own attributes, to have the attributes of God, something that he himself didn't receive that that he just he couldn't get get over it right it would almost be like to use an ant analogy again right is that i don't know like a, a, a lion is like why did you let the ant get to be you when i'm a lion like i at least walk on four feet i at least have power right i'm not tiny right he's got all of these things in his mind right i'm the king of the forest um and so these are the things that were in lucifer's mind but it annoyed him that this was there, and that's why he sowed the seed of sin and made it more appealing to Adam and Eve of saying, the real issue if you eat this tree is that really you're going to be, and insert the whole narrative that we talked about um, many times throughout the week. And so through the envy of the devil, death entered into the world through the sin of man. That's why in the liturgy we say, and by through the envy of the devil, death entered into the world. But God said that if you are going to choose to go against your nature, I can't live in you. 
I can't. It's not because I'm a jerk. It's not because I look down on you. It's not because I'm, I find you repulsive as a creature. I don't. I made you and you're my kid. The issue is that my nature has no evil in it. My nature has nothing wrong in it. I can't mix it. It's impossible for me. So I love you deeply, but I can't dwell in you in that same way if you are going to put something else in me. I can't live in impurity. And so man was expelled from the garden. And this cherubim was put between God and man. A veil was placed between God and man. There's a division now between the heavenly and the earthly. Man no longer had free access to God the way that he did when he was in his right estate. And that is why, as we're going to say in a minute, why there are certain rituals that happened in the Old Testament. But our God didn't want this to happen. Our God didn't want us to be severed from Him. Our God didn't want us to not have communication with Him. If He did, He would have just killed man, if that was what He wanted. And in fact, some people ask, why didn't God just kill them? It would go completely against His nature to do so. It would go against His word, which was a truth. He doesn't lie. Right? If he said that this is why I'm doing this, that I'm doing it, then that is why. There's no lying in that. It also wouldn't be like him to allow the devil to have that much power over creation. Imagine if every time he creates and the devil does something that he has to go and uncreate. It would mean that this God is actually now limited by the devil in how he does things. But that isn't what he wanted. Some other people ask, well, what's the big deal? Why couldn't they just say, sorry? Right? Why couldn't, why couldn't it be a case of repentance? Right? All it is that they can just come back and say, hey, we're sorry. And the reason why sorry wasn't enough is because they went against their nature. Right? If you picture this, this automobile, right? It's you took it and you just took a knife and you slashed it, right? and it rained and it rusted. So you can say, I'm so sorry, and that's nice, you probably are. There's no doubt about your soreness, but the car is damaged. That's the problem. And the car itself is what needs fixing. This is our nature. This was the, the image and likeness of God that we damaged and that needed to be restored. And saying sorry, no matter how many times you say sorry, is never going to fix it. Because it was something material, if you will, but in a spiritual way, okay, that was lost, that was changed. And so this is what man didn't understand. And what man didn't understand was the results of this injury. They don't know what happens. They don't understand that rust right, is going to slow it down. They don't understand that if I, if I use the wrong gas that I'm doing damage. They don't understand that if I put too much weight in the car, it goes. So they didn't know any of these things. They were completely brand new to the concept. And so if God were to just immediately give them a brand new car, they're not going to understand it. They're just going to ruin it. And that's why he bothered to go through the motions of time with humanity. Why there wasn't an instantaneous incarnation and fixing it. Is that God now has to deal with humanity as a child and growing up. He has to bear with the mistakes that children inevitably make. And he has to rear them through every stage of their life. And that's how and hopefully how you can read and interpret the Old Testament. Is that they were made to be perfect and they didn't understand it. They were made to be in His image and likeness, but they didn't really know how to do it. And consequently, He literally holds their hand and walks them through it. 
And just as a parent isn't going to have a long, drawn-out conversation with their infant about the dangers of overeating or touching fire, right? Instead, the, pa- the parent will be aggressive, will be physical, will be loud, will use intonations, will use very strong demonstrations. This is what the Lord God did with these infants. This is why you read instantaneous death falling upon them. This is why you read him yelling at them and raising his voice. This is why you will read him how all these things that everybody's worked up about, about how dare God talk like that. Of course he does. So do you. So do I. Right? All of us do these things to the person who's at the stage where that's all that they can understand. Where all they can do is associate. For some reason, this thing causes dad to be angry. I don't get it. All I did was touch. Right? That's all the kid can think. And that somehow made dad blow up right but they don't understand that the blow up is dad's love is dad's protection is dad's understanding that is greater than the child's understanding that this child is going to be harmed and in a big way if they were to continue to do this and so our lord nurtures them and goes through these motions and as they begin to get older he starts to explain more to them right at the very beginning there was not even a law Right? You can't give uh, a curfew to a three-year-old. Right? You can't explain grounding to a three-year-old. Right? You can't talk to a three-year-old about his social constructs. But a six or seven-year-old might be able to start to understand a little bit more when they start asking that infamous why question. Maybe it's from the age of like three or four now. To everything. And they still don't understand everything. However, the parent does start to give some answers. Right? Of saying, because this hurts. Right? Because this makes mom sad. Because this is going to give you an owie. And we use still like child's language, right? But it's still another level. And this is when the Lord started to give them the law. And they go through this journey and he's pleading with mankind. And mankind is not interested, as we've said throughout the week. I won't go through all that again. But whatever, we arrive at the people of Israel. And the people of Israel elect to have him as their king. Again, look at the patience of, of God. He says, all right, my kids can't stand me for some reason or the other. All right, do any of my kids want me? He found one kid who did. And he says, okay, Habibi, come. All right, let's explain to you what, what are the expectations. And the people of Israel accepted to be their God, the descendants of Abraham, which accepting is, I don't know, giving them more freedom than than, than maybe is, is real in the sense that it's honoring them of saying you're allowed to choose even though they already were, they're already the, the, the kids of God. But sin had already taken root in man. This disease had already overtaken them. And so they were only able to see their God through the lens of disease. They were only able to see their dad through the lens of their condition. And so consequently what they wanted from God wasn't love, was not his identity, They didn't understand their identity. They didn't really care much about that. What they wanted from God was stuff. And God said, you know what? I get it. I understand it. I'll give you stuff. right? I I will give you stuff. But I still want you to come to the right conclusion of who you are and why you're here and what you're made for and that there's supposed to be a relationship here. So I will even instruct you with that. I will... Do all the things you're asking. You want to have a king, I will give you a king. 
You want to be successful in your wars even though I don't like your wars? Fight by sure. Go ahead. Go to war. I will fight your wars. You want to be rich? I'll let you be rich. Okay? Only just don't use those as, the, as your stumbling block. Don't say, I can't love you because you didn't give me. I'll give you all of those. Okay? Just love me. Okay? Just love me. Know who I am. Honor me. And the people of Israel didn't. So God was preparing for them for maturity. The maturity that is going to come in the feast that is yet to come. We haven't celebrated it yet. And so God wanted time to extract them and to teach them what was going on. Cultures would come and go, and it made people unsure about what they believed. Right? We've read throughout the week of different things that would enter their cultures, not even just from the Greeks and the Romans, but for example, some of the, the places, I think it was called Raba, um, and different places that they named where they would take pagan practices and just add it to their own and have random things that would come in. They would get, they would get confused. And our Lord would speak to them through the judges, through the kings, and through the prophets. And that's why we're reading all of that throughout the, the year, not just throughout the week, is because the testimony of Scripture is a really big deal. God wanted to have this drawn-out process to keep telling us and explaining and teaching everything, to say that if I tell you about this, before it happens, then you know that I'm not just making it up. Then you know that this is actually a plan. Then you know that I really exist, that I'm not really a figment of your imagination. Then you know that these random things that you are doing actually have a meaning. Only time and experience will teach that to people. You can't just tell someone that. You can't just say, oh, trust me, there's, a, there's this good thing, there's this good concept, and it just happens. Right? They might be like, okay, prove it. And the only way to prove it would be able to say, well, here's the experience that shows that. Here's the experiment that showed that this is the conclusion. And that exper experiment was their lives, it was their generations. And that's why God had patience with them, even though they didn't necessarily always merit that patience. So He gave the prophets to help teach and to tell them why they were there, which is what we just talked about, and to say that that's still the desire that's still the goal, that's still the thing that I want. And I am working to rectify it. I am going to fix the car. I am going to give you the new car. I will. But I want you, when you receive it, to know what it's for, how it runs, so that we don't go through all of this. Obviously, I'm monumentally trivializing it in the image of the car. And so we see all these imageries throughout the Old Testament preparing for this, right? We talked about some of them already on the Feast of the Cross. We talked about, and we read about it during the week, of Moses raising his hands in the wilderness as a sign. We talked about the children of Israel, how even their sitting formation, right, which they didn't understand, was in the form of a cross. That anybody who were to look at them from above would see the nation of Israel sitting as a nation of the cross. And they had no idea yet. Even Moses talks about, not even when he actually did it, about the need of God to stretch out his hands to draw all people to him. We see Isaiah 
right, who speaks about the lamb, or Jeremiah, speaking of the lamb led to the slaughter as a dumb sheep to be sheared. And I'm going to go through just a, a few of them because they're important. Because I want you to think about these scriptures in a way that makes sense to you. Okay, imagine if, if, if someone, we all love the, the guru monks, imagine if some monk came to you and told you, just so you know, next week you're going to have this event happen to you and this happened to you and this happened to you. Imagine if those events happen. You'd be super excited and you're like, oh wow, that's a holy man, I want, I'm going to go to him all the time. Imagine if somebody just tells you one thing about your life. But the prophecies talked about not only what happened to the nation of Israel, they talked about our God and His coming long before His coming in the flesh. They talked about His birth. They talked about to whom He would be born. They would talk about what tribe He would be born in. They would talk about specifically within that tribe who He would be a specific descendant of. They talked about what city He would be born in. They talked about what issues He would face as a child, that He would even have to be a refugee. They talked about the nature of his upbringing and even what the people would call him, that even though he wasn't from a certain city, that they would call him that, that they would say that he's from that city. They talked about things that other people would say to him. They talked about things that other people would do to him. They talked about the manner of his death. They talked about the things that he would say as he was dying. They even go through and talk through very specific scenarios that happened in the Gospels, which is why we put those prophecies right with the readings it wasn't one event that they predicted it was a whole life that they predicted and that should be why you boast in your scripture right if you don't read your scripture and know that it says something like that then you'll just treat it with with contempt they cast me off i the beloved like a horrid corpse and they put nails in my flesh david who wrote this never had nails in his flesh they have pierced, do not forsake me, O Lord my God. These are the words that Christ said. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They counted all my bones. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. We're even talking now about the people who are participating in the crime, not even just the Lord himself. This level of description. They have spoken with their lips and shook their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him save him if he wanted him. This is word for words, right? What the Pharisees and the chief priests and the presbyters and the old men of the people were saying in the gospel readings that we just read. And that's why we tie the readings to say, not one of his bones will be broken, is what it said in Matthew, to bring us to the remembrance of that. They will look on him whom they pierce, was another prophecy. But one of the most telling things, and I want to tie this into the ritual, is the priesthood and the sacrifice of the Old Testament and how the rituals tell of something deeper. This morning we read about the Passover and this is when the people were led, were going to be led out of their captivity to the Egyptians. And Egypt is this big symbol of sin in, the, in spiritual life is that the people of God were captive to sin, and they needed a deliverer. And so the Lord promises to come with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm to deliver them. And He tells them 
to slay an animal and to take the blood of it and to put it on the doorpost. And he says, not anything of this. He said, you will eat it. And none of it should be left over until the morning. It is the Lord's Passover. And in this night I will pass over the doors of those who have the blood of the Lamb on their doors. And I will defeat the tyrant who holds them captivity. I will bring life by slaying the thing that kills you. I will give you resurrection by killing death. These are very intentional analogies. And he said, This thing that I'm doing must be for you an ordinance for you to keep throughout all your generations, that all of you must every single year remember and participate in. Because on this day, the Lord your God has redeemed and delivered you. And when he established the priesthood, this feast became the most prominent of the feasts, right? And every year it was kept. And they would bring a Passover lamb and they would do all of these things. And once a year as well, because of the sin of the people, we saw the great high priest, right, who was of the tribe of Levi, from the descendants of Aaron, would enter into the holies of holies, which was always throughout the year closed off to the people. There's a symbol to bring us back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this closed wall between God and man. Of saying, no, there's a barrier. There's something between us and that is your, your sin. Once a year only I will allow you to enter, to offer sacrifice and to exit again. Our Lord was deeply ingraining into the ritual the very thing that He would do. It wasn't a coincidence Right? This I'm saying this is all intentional is what I want in your mind. This isn't random. This is planned. Right? He intentionally waited until this Passover feast for his coming to Jerusalem. Right? During this time where they're preparing to remember that the Lord their God delivered them from the tyranny of their of their taskmaster, which is sin and death. That the Lord Himself comes in and allows Himself to become this Paschal Lamb. Just like they were told to bring a Paschal lamb without blemish, right? To say that something very innocent, right? The ritual is important. A very innocent lamb, a, blood, a, a pure, spotless lamb, as a symbol of saying, this lamb didn't do anything. That's why it was pure. That's why it was gorgeous and beautiful and, and, and the cream of the crop. You say, this thing didn't do anything. And you need to understand that even though it didn't do anything, it's dying because of something you did. Because what you did brought death. But I'm sparing you death, right? And allowing to receive the blood of this lamb. Did God need to have holocaust of lambs? Of course not. Right? This is not a material God. He's not roasting in heaven having a barbecue. Right? This is completely useless to Him from a physical perspective. From a materialistic thing, it is the most pointless thing in existence. But God gave a ritual so that we would understand. So that when we look at what's happening, we know what it is that has occurred, what it is that is occurring. Right? We can't just see it. Imagine if imagine if if, if everyone were to come in and say, You're all communed. And that somehow spiritually you're like, oh, okay, I guess we're communed now. 
right? Then it's just random hocus pocus mumbo jumbo being distributed, right? Whereas the Lord is appealing to our senses and understanding that our minds don't operate that way because He gave us our minds. Understanding that He gave us our senses and that we need to perceive through them. And so he said, okay, I'm going to give you a tradition that might make no sense to you. No one's done that before. Nobody has this thing going on. I'm doing it for you so that when it happens, you understand it, right? That on the day of Passover, it is now my blood that is shed for you. I am that Paschal Lamb. I am the one that didn't do anything wrong. But I'm not going to hide myself from you. I wanted to restore to you my identity. And the Lord does one very monumental thing that many people don't quite grasp during this day. When He says while, stand, while elevated on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I really wish that we would start to pay attention to rituals, not to worship rituals, but to understand rituals. Because, as you said I think before, if you go to Egypt, you go to the Middle East, if you go to the monasteries, when we distribute psalms, we don't give numbers. We read the line of it, because there were no numbers. I, I wish, personally, that we would have that tradition in this church. I wish that we would stop handing up numbers and give the first line of the psalms. That's an instruction now to the deacons. Because what it did for the people is, A, they're supposed to memorize psalms, and B, when you said the first line of the psalm, that meant, okay, recite. Recite the psalm that's about to be said. And so our Lord is drawing attention to the people around Him, His own people, who they don't get that He's here to fix, that He's doing the very thing that He promised. He said, I'm going to come, I'm going to give you everything again, I'm going to restore you. They don't know. He gave them all sorts of signs, and one of them was in this psalm. Right? That whole psalm is about His, his, his crucifixion. If they had followed his lead and began to recite the psalm, they would have identified their God on the cross. If they were to have, have said the words of that psalm, they would have read about his piercing, of dividing and casting lots on his clothing, of the crown that they would put on his head. They would have been able to bring their minds and understand that he was revealing to themselves in that moment, this is me. It is I. It is I who made you. It is I who fashioned you. It is I who delivered you from the land of Egypt. It is I who fought your wars. It is I who promised that I would come and that I would make things all anew again. Because that is what He came for. He came for us not in a display of power. He came for us not to reestablish an earthly kingdom because it was never the purpose. That was never the design of creation. He came to restore order again to the universe. He came to restore the purpose of man again, to say that you were made to be me and now I'm allowing you to be me. He came to restore back our identity because now he wasn't dealing with an adolescent, he wasn't dealing with a toddler, he wasn't dealing with an infant or a newborn. Now he's dealing with a full-grown, mature adult and said, I'm going to give you back the car, and I'm going to give you something more than you had before. I'm going to give you again immortality and incorruption, and I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And that's why the, the feast of, of this, this crucifixion doesn't end here. 
right? It's continued in the resurrection, and it's continued in the ascension, and it's continued in the Pentecost, because all of these things are, are all together. They're, they're not instantaneous moments of salvation. They're part of the whole economy. They're part of the whole plan of salvation altogether. And he wants us to understand that he's our dad who gets us. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. I was born and I have come into the world for this reason, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is the message of Christ, right? Is this simple truth of I am, and because I am, you are. It's actually that simple. All of existence is about those two facts. He is, and therefore, we are. And because he is the truth, a truth is always true. The truth is eternal. Because if something ceases to be true, then it couldn't have been true. Not being philosophical, it's just, that's how it is. It's either true or it isn't. So if something is true, then it is eternally true. And because truth cannot die, this is why our Lord couldn't be held even by the grave. Right? Because the truth of His Godhead is an eternal truth. The truth of His Godhead is that He has power and authority over death. But this truth wasn't cheap. This truth was monumentally expensive. Our God planned and suffered with all of humanity all of that time, came to earth and labored with His people, allowed them to kill Him, allowed them to scorn and abuse Him and to mock Him and to take what they thought was taking His dignity from Him. They thought that they could do all of these things. And I would argue that so do we. But in spite of this, the truth spared Himself not to manifest even to those who didn't want it. We live in an era that thinks that this truth is ridiculous. We live in an era that thinks that what complete hogwash, this whole concept of some guy who needs to become man and die, and, and, and that's just bizarre. But these scriptures are real. I mean, we could talk and talk and talk with the scriptures. That's a fact that we have to deal with. And you can mock the image of Christ, but God allowed us to choose the cross. He didn't choose the cross. God let us choose the cross. Because if God were to choose His manner of death, we'd accuse Him of being weak. We'd say, oh, you did that because that was convenient for you. You did that because of X, Y, and Z. We would have found some reason for it. God could have died quietly, privately somewhere in a, in a room, and He could have still accomplished the work. But He wanted to be in front of the whole world so that the truth would be proclaimed, that there be no reason to doubt that He really died. That's why He allowed Himself even to stay in the tomb for three days and not arise right away, that there be no doubt that He really, <coughs> genuinely and truly died. To say that this is a truth that happened, so that even those people who are alive during that time could wrestle with that truth. Because if they didn't have conviction about it, there's no way that they would ever preach it to somebody else. They had to experience it in reality and in truth. I pray that we all encounter this truth, because if we encounter this truth, 
then you are compelled to ask yourself, are you living according to your identity? Are you living according to your purpose? Or do you live for something else? Do you join in the scoffers? Or do you join in St. Paul, who in response to the scoffer says, as for me, I shall find glory in nothing except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Glory be to our God now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen.